Hello, everyone. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Forever Forward podcast. And today we have a very special guest, uh, uh, Robert Philbrook, uh, uh, I mean, popularly known as Bob. Uh, and we are together going to talk about the future of asset performance management, but particularly from the healthcare uh, sort of sector space and zeroing down uh, on you know, on UK as a, as a market. But before we get started, Hey, Bob, thank you so much for making time to join us for the podcast. Would you like to say hello to our, our listeners? Yes, I would. Hello. It's, uh, it's a great pleasure and a privilege to uh, be able to give you uh, perhaps my view of um, how the uh, hard FM industries uh, progressed in the time that I've uh, worked in the sector. So um, I'm sure it won't please everybody, but it will please some people, you know, the things that I might have to say purely as observations as well. Mm. 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 But again, uh, Bob, I mean, the entire idea of this this podcast and the Forever Forward community as well is not to say things or discuss things that pleases everyone, but things that is good for the community, something that I hope, uh, as you rightly said, some yeah. of it eventually gets picked up uh, and obviously open to f- uh, feedback as well. Um, oh, absolutely. I'd, I'd welcome any feedback. And uh, you're absolutely right. It's, it is for the, the good of the industry, for good Correct. of the, you know, for the, the client, for the people that are carrying out, and, for, and particularly in hospital environments for the patients. So I absolutely. think that's important to remember. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. And very interestingly, you know, I heard a podcast uh, a couple of weeks back, which I posted about as well. Uh, it was a, probably a TED talk where uh, one of the, you know, uh, I mean, nurses was making a very passionate plea on why nursing staff needs to be at the center of the digital transformation that's happening across healthcare from the perspective of patient patient care. I'm sure there are some inspiration that we can draw uh, from healthcare uh, in, in, in that sense. That's very interesting you should say that because I think that uh, there's quite a disjoint between what an FM company think they need to deliver to what uh, perception the um, the end user, the nurses, the nursing staff have as a perception of what they should. I mean, I, I could give you a clear example of that. One day I asked a nurse when they draw 15 milliliters or of uh, a drug into a syringe what's their tolerance on that she said what, what, what do you mean I said well do you allow plus one mil minus two and they said no it's 15 that that's that's what you draw so typically you get a very good understanding of what they're all about and the way that they carry out their tasks where typically Mm. if you ask an engineer that very same question he would say well plus one mil minus two you know something like that so i think that the outlook is uh, totally different uh, and the perceptions of uh, what we do as an industry to what they do as a as a as a nursing um, because bearing in mind we're doing the same job we're doing a mechanical um maintenance they're doing a physical maintenance absolutely their patients are humans our patients are assets (laughs) absolutely right and 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 i think that that uh, really does need to be better understood because how many fm companies actually ask the uh, nursing staff you know how well are we doing and what could we do better very very few because they're frightened to ask because they know perhaps what the circumstances are uh, around uh, what uh, that decision might be uh, given from, yeah. 
that that's brilliant but i think i, I held you uh, by making this point i held you from the from from passing on your introduction so bob I, I mean i had the pleasure of interacting with you uh two to three weeks back that is where we decided that we must talk again uh but yeah. i'm sure the uh yeah. why don't you give a brief introduction of your phenomenal career that that continues as you, you oh, say phenomenal. that you don't want to rest uh, so tell yeah. everyone about your work yeah. in the healthcare space. Uh, yeah, I uh, I work for a major construction company, and uh, my role at uh, that time in the early two uh, thousands was uh, mainly around quality, safety, and environmental management systems. But because I had this aptitude for getting things done, um, I was given um, pretty well all of the business critical projects to to manage and deliver. And uh, one of the very last projects that I undertook for them was um, I was asked if I was interested in um, managing the mobilization from a, an existing 200, 100-year-old estate into a brand-new PFI hospital. Mm. Well, I didn't know anything about uh, FM and the FM industry, so it was uh, a, a challenge, but something that I was really keen to get involved in. And because... I think that I didn't have a history of FM. I took everything back to first principles. And the first principles were, uh, what do we have in the building? How long does it take to maintain? What do we need to maintain it? Who do we need to maintain it? So working on those principles, um, uh, I put together with a very, very um, um, a, a good team, competent team, to put together um, uh, the asset information for the brand new PFI, um, which um, meant that we started from scratch. Now, in saying that, um, the PFI was built by the same company that were going to carry out the maintenance. Hmm. So that made it a little easier, I guess, for the introduction. But um, as a first, uh, we were there eight months before the handover of the PFI. So that meant that I had a lot longer to prepare for the handover than most FM companies or organisations would generally. Hmm. So I think that that brings me to something to say that I think that uh, for, for brand new PFIs, I think that the, uh, the maintenance contracts have got to be let at least nine months before handover because how else... Do you understand what you're going to be maintaining? Hmm. And uh, another uh, example of that is that um, the builders didn't understand why we needed so much information about the assets um, because they totally uh, misunderstood the concept of maintenance. So we built up then a very good understanding as to what we wanted to do uh, and why we wanted to go into the estate early so that we could understand the critical systems. One of the things that we did was uh, buddied up our, um, our uh, uh, um, leads, uh, critical system leads, with uh, their, uh, mm. their um, uh, build construction team so that uh, there was very, very good passing of knowledge but one of the, th the things, Ramesh, that we, we did, I, I uh, was walking around the building one day and I saw one of the uh, builders using a tablet and I asked him what he was doing. And it, it was the fact that he had a BIM model of the, uh, the estate. And that was something totally um, new to us as a, as a, as a maintenance organisation. So mm. 
again, um, from that, we understood then the benefits of BIM um, and the fact that uh, we could line trace, we could do all of those things um, uh, in the new build that wasn't possible before uh, because everything was on, on a BIM model, on a model. And I think that uh, that sort of revolutionised the way that we started to uh, to look at things and look at the way that the hospital was built. And it certainly helped us with um, finding everything that's uh, that's in the building because one of the other things that we yeah. learned is that uh, from the existing estate, which was over 100 years old, the asset density in the new build was probably as a factor of five. So that's where you start to get problems around when you win tenders, they normally base their tender on a, you know, a pound per meter rule, which is a very, very old rule. Um, so it doesn't take into account the asset density for these new buildings. So straight away, when contracts are won, um, they struggle with budget because um, it's under budgeted, underfunded, and um, the expectation is that this brand new hospital will keep pristine uh, in very good condition. But um, because of the asset density and the, uh, the considerably more number of assets that are, are in the new builds, um, mm. it's totally underfunded. It makes it very, very difficult for um, FM organisations to... Um, carry out maintenance in accordance with uh, with budgets because you know what commercial people are like they're um, quite uh, difficult to, to um, communicate with sometimes but in saying that um, some of the initiatives then that we had to look at uh, to try and reduce the cost of maintenance uh, multi-skilling uh, the technicians um, we changed the CAFAM system so that it was um, uh, mobile technology enabled. Um, we even did um, some assessments of um, critical breakdowns so that we knew hotspots so that we could then put uh, stores and equipment um, in uh, areas that we knew were typically going to be so, uh, more mm, breakdown. Mm. Mm. Now, that, that's a host of, of stuff you did and maybe the reason why I wanted to take a pause and probably we would like to love to delve deeper into each one of them or or, or some of them uh from yeah. from that perspective and just maybe this was how how long back was it, in time was this uh 2010 2010 it, it was actually uh 2010 to 2016 the, the entire mobilization of um the uh existing estate into the new estate so, so um, not that old and not that recent. So that's that's uh, you know not then back in time, but not that recent as well. Absolutely right. But bearing mine, um, that was my introduction. I've done a lot of work since in uh, the uh, FM industry, which uh, from the lessons I've learned, um, it seems that we still make the same mistakes, unfortunately. Um, and so that's where I'm really. So pleased I mean, to be able to give have an opportunity to you know talk about what those things might well be and how you can best learn from them. Yeah. So I mean, I think a couple of things. I mean, uh, I think one when you mentioned about first principles and you not being from the FM background, I've honestly a uh, number of people I've come across who've not been from FM background but have been able to make maximum impact is phenomenal. I mean, mm. probably just explains that maybe people who are not from that background don't come with that baggage. 
So like you mentioned, you're able to look at first principles. So, I mean, maybe Bob, that will bring me to the first question to you. Uh, you know, over the years, uh, do you, you know, what do you think has remained constant, uh, you know, and, and what do you think has changed when you look at hard services in healthcare? What's remained constant and what's changed? I think that uh, let's get on to the good bit. What's changed is there's far more uh, technology available now to help you manage your CAFAM regime. And mm. that is, um, you know, we talked about BIM modeling. We've talked about the CAFAM systems themselves mm. are much more um, user-friendly. They're much more um, uh, um, comp- 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 comprehensive. Right. In that, I mean, there's a lot more modules now that interact. You know, you can go from the CAFAM system to a commercial model, to a stores model, um, which then makes the CAFAM system the central hub for containing all of the information that you might need and all of that intelligence that you might need right. at a late date to give you a better understanding of how those uh, assets are uh, uh, performing. So Correct. I think that... Uh, that uh, the um, the uh, BIM model, uh, the the CAFAM system. Uh, the other is um, the uh, um, uh, the fact that, uh, that that you've got these systems now that the um, uh, BMS is. Mm. I was coming trying to come to. So the BMS, um, I think that's one of the most underutilized is. Uh, utilize pieces of equipment you'll find in in facilities and that is that um i found that uh at the the estate that i was at it was probably the most advanced um uh bms that uh, was available at that time but it, we knew so little about it the builders knew so little about it um and we as the uh as the uh, maintenance organization knew very little about it so one of the things that I did very quickly, it was a, it was a Schneider system. I very quickly um, made contact with Schneider about um, how we could better improve the system, what training was available for us, because it seems that um, on more than one occasion, I've seen BIMs, these uh, BMSs in cloakrooms with a jacket put over the top of them, and somebody I'll say, well, what's that under there? Oh, that's the BMS head. Oh, what does that do? Oh, I'm not quite sure about that, but, you know, it's there and, and that's what we've got. So I think there's a general naivety about how um, much uh, that BMS could improve performance of our assets. But- and I, I don't understand why uh, FM uh, organisations are so reluctant to put somebody on the BMS head 24-7 because, for me, one very good BMS uh, uh, technician might well be worth 10 technicians with the amount of information that's available and the things that they can do remotely might well mean that uh, you don't have to send somebody out to to look at things. Um, but the other thing, uh, Yamesh, is about um, a lot of the estates that I go on are PFIs. Um, mm. They'll have more than one BM, BSM. They'll have more than one head, and they'll be all over the place, and it'll be that right. they're different systems. But there's there's no there's no appetite to make them more compatible and to bring them to a central system. So the, the I don't know why that is. I don't so know why. The, but the point is. you mentioned that they are underutilized, right? But I think uh, you know, and again, probably today there are software 
uh, software is available, which probably would not even need for you to put someone right at, in front of the BMS screen 24-7. But I think it brings, according to me, what, I, what my experience has been is that very few FM companies, till recently, until recently, things have changed in the last 12 to 18 months. But until recently, when you go back in time in 24 months, there was hardly any motivation for them to use better data. And if yeah. you don't need data, it doesn't matter whether it's there with you or not. And that's was precisely the reason why, uh, you know, BMS continues to underutilize. In fact, even CMMS uh, continues to be underutilized in, in, in that manner. That's my take. I mean, it's like if it's if I don't need it, so I won't look for it. But once I need it and I look for it, that's when I really want to figure out that, hey, how conveniently could that be available? And that's where, in, in my view, things are, are are changing. But But interesting that you you make a point on PFI and non-PFI. So what I wanted to, you know, lead on to the second question maybe is how are things different to PFI as compared to a non-PFI when you look at healthcare sector? Like what, well, what normally, changes? Uh, normally the, the PFIs are new estates, uh, the new hospitals, it's new intelligence, it's, mm. uh, it's, a, new, it's a new brush, if you like. Okay. Whereas the uh, non-PFIs are always generally uh, existing estates. Uh, Got it. They have what they have in terms of asset intelligence. Right. Which uh, which normally, for different reasons, isn't uh, very good. When I first went to uh, the estate that uh, I refer to, um, mm. I asked the general manager... How are you getting on, Mike? He said, well, we were getting on all right until the trust asked us to keep uh, maintenance records. So I knew then at that point where I was in terms of what my expectations should be, should be. and how I needed to change uh, a culture of, um, you know, this is how we've always done it to how we need to start doing it in the future. So uh, mm. that took some doing. But you take them on a journey. Everybody comes on the same journey. Yeah. Right. Now, one of the things, obviously, is is I like with little work that we've done in, in the UK, I mean, and I'm assuming it's going to be the same with probably all the countries. There's a lot of stress that happened on the healthcare uh, facilities as a result of COVID and everything that happened, uh, which probably made the assets operate in a manner that they were not designed to operate. Uh, right, and I think that's where one of the use cases has been that if you can use data, you are able to drive better decisions purely from asset performance, asset life cycle, so on and so forth. Uh, perspective: Have you have you seen that uh, evolve? I mean, I've... yeah, very much so. Uh, you only have to walk into any hospital these days to see it's absolutely full. Mm. You know, for um, um, uh, day uh, day visits or the wards are full. The hospitals are, are, are full to capacity, so that does put a tremendous strain on uh, on not just the nursing staff and the, but also the facilities. And so it's best mm. then how do you uh, best maintain them to keep pace with the nursing activities? How do you keep pace? So um, and the other thing that that does. Um, it uh, makes it very difficult under life cycle to be able to change mm. anything because how do you shut? There's no resilience now in the NHS in terms of uh, you can't move people from one ward to the other while you're, you know, doing what you need. The life to. cycle and stuff, uh, yeah. Yeah. So that means that uh, everything's under so much pressure. But the only thing I think that there is around that is um, mm. 
more of a responsibility to keep the maintenance regimes running much more stringently to how they are. And that might mean more maintenance. Um, so you pr probably intervene more than designed. So you don't do, if you were doing once every three months, you probably intervene early or you are suggesting that you deploy technology and, and you do condition based and, and all the uh, talk about. I think you, they're both hand in hand. You can't mm -hmm. do one without the other. Mm -hmm. I think um, uh, that um, one of the things that you just said there actually is quite interesting. I, I think that I still find a lot of problems with um, when you start to look at maintenance regimes for critical systems, for instance, which is what I generally focus on when I go into a, a peer mm. fire on state, because they're the things that are the most important. Um, I find that... Uh, some some have come up with their own uh, maintenance regimes. So they're not looking at HDMs, they're not looking at O&Ms, they're not looking at best practice. But as a for instance, they might say that they'll do a reoccurring three monthly on a critical plant, whereas then they're not looking at the three monthly, six monthly, nine monthly annual maintenance regimes that these things need. So in effect, the change in a filter, change in a belt, wiping some oil off something. Mm. And uh, so it's not getting perhaps the maintenance that it needs. And I, I think that's that's a generalisation of what I've actually see. seen. I see. So um, it's about, um, other than the fact there's still a lot of debate about what needs to go into the CAFAM system anyway, in terms of critical plant. Because you get commercial uh, intervention that will say, well, we didn't tender for that. But as a one-liner, it always says at the beginning of these contracts that uh, our equipment will be maintained in accordance with statutory, legal, HTMs, O&Ms, best practice, manufacturers. So for me, when I looked at what I was looking at, and that is, again, at first principle, for me, there was no debate. That, that all had to go in. And what I do recommend now to um, estates when I go, particularly to the operational uh, uh, leads, is that mm. um, you can't leave things out unless you mitigate it. So I always stress the fact about trying to keep a, a risk register to say that, um, uh, you know, we know what we should be doing, but the commercial decision is that we don't. But mm. then who has made that decision? Because... Um, Murphy's law is that uh, you know what can go wrong will go wrong, right? And so um, if there's no if there's no record of what your uh, ethos was around the maintenance of that piece of plant and equipment, then how do you justify your action? It's normally then going straight back to the operational team, and it will be that why didn't you maintain it? And then uh, so up till that point, there'd be no record as to why they didn't do something. So I think it's very important that if they do decide that they're not going to do something in accordance with, mm. that there's a risk register retained, and it just uh, it explains as to why they've mitigated that and decided not to do it. That brings me. That, that's an interesting point. So that brings me to the point, I mean, if you look at the connective team, you said, of if there are, I mean, you, and by the way, there are very clear guidelines as far as the health technical memorandum is concerned in the, and the various provisions of how critical systems should be maintained and, how, and stuff yeah. like that. You have the annual verification, all of that, that going in and stuff. So it, it's just coming to the, to the question, uh, given that so much is changing in healthcare, stressed uh, assets, every, everything, what what's the role of a modern day FM company 
as in the in in what the modern day healthcare facilities need clearly it's changed uh i think it uh, is changed because uh, there's so much pressure on the assets uh and the way that the hospitals are run these days but i think it still goes back to the basic principles of mm. general maintenance and the maintenance regimes mm. because i know that uh when when you've mentioned um condition based monitoring from my view on that i think it's a very good move but in this state I worked at, I I did express my um, preference for condition-based monitoring, and they said to me, the trust, mm. when you can provide me records of maintenance for all of that equipment that you want to move into uh, condition-based monitoring, we might consider it. Until then, you know, go away. So I think that uh, I, I, I don't want condition-based monitoring being used to replace or to um, uh, disguise the fact that there's a lack of maintenance on something. I think that they go hand in glove. No, you've got to do the maintenance, but you've got to do the um, uh, the critical, you know, the, the remote monitoring as well. I think that's uh, it's. It rather reminds me of when I was sat on the runway uh, coming back from my holiday, and I thought to myself, if you ask the maintenance team, if you adopted uh, for this airline the same maintenance regime as where you work, would you get on this plane? And I can honestly say I have asked that question lots of times when I go into estates, and there's a lot of them that will laugh, and you know that... Uh, you've, you've got your answer. Fun. You've got yeah. your answer there, yeah. But, but from that, um, it's that when you look at uh, these critical systems that they have in an aircraft and they're telling you that this equipment is running correctly, whereas we tend to use it in FM to say that it's running badly. And that's because of our maintenance regimes. I think that's because you need to run this, uh, this uh, remote monitoring on equipment that isn't maintained to get that intelligence to say... This is why it's not running properly. This is what's going to happen if you leave it. But then once you've got that level of intelligence, I mm. think that it then has to be adopted onto plant and equipment that's regularly maintained. And then it's used as a proactive tool rather than a reactive tool, if that right. makes sense. That yeah. absolutely makes sense. I love the uh, the fact the airplane analogy. I'll probably ask some of the yeah. when I go next. Uh I can't well, I'm not a good flyer, you see, so I always yeah. wonder those things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of talk, obviously, on technology, data driven maintenance, and I think you've answered uh, some of the con context already, where you say that you know any movement to a new way of doing things should only come once you have done the in the past things correctly in the way it's expected to be done, right? I mean, and it should not be like a, a, a what should I say, a replacement or an either or. Yeah. The, the basics yeah. still remain the same. But what, according to you, does the pathway to transform state look like? Because let's say, I mean, honestly, not everyone would have done things the way they expected and stuff like that. But what does the pathway to transform state look like? Because yeah, I think that to, there's a yeah. there's a disjoint. I think you get some evangelists within an organ a, a hard FM organization that will say uh, technology is the way forward. But it's very very rarely um, done in partnership with the operational teams. I think that there needs to be much more dialogue between the two and with the trust. 
um, so that everybody gets a better understanding of what you're trying to achieve rather than, um, you know, you want to try and introduce condition-based monitoring, um, but you've not told the operational teams and you've not told the technicians that that's what you wanted to do. Because the other really good thing about doing that is they can tell you an awful lot about what's going on um, to help you then uh, implement condition-based monitoring. Because they know a lot of these uh, this plant equipment quite intimately, I think that absolutely that's because they they are the ones the who interact most. That they know, yeah. So I think that they're a bit of a lost cause uh, sometimes in that uh, they're the very last in the in the food chain of communication. But really, anybody that wants to change anything, they should be the first to be consulted so that you can get a better understanding of plant and equipment that they've been maintaining for years how does it function what goes wrong with it and then that can help you build this uh, picture of preventative maintenance absolutely yeah. because i think as you rightly said and again the analogy that i was trying to draw right early when i talk about spoke about the podcast of the nursing staff i mean i think if you look at the triangle in healthcare the healthcare has patients nurses nursing staff and doctors and uh, you know asset management office hard fm has uh, assets, uh, junior engineers or technicians and senior engineers, right? So I think, you know, they interact more often than not uh, with the assets. They, they look at things more often than not. They listen to things more often than not. And if there is a yeah. way for that to all of that to go through, but that obviously is represents a, a, a bigger challenge. And, and, and I think that's where the opportunity also exists. Do you also see there has been a broadly in hard FM, not just in healthcare, there has been this talk of uh, knowledge issue where you're saying that the the most senior engineers are going to retire soon. There's a retention mm. issue. Is that absolutely how how critical that does that become for a a critical operation like in healthcare facility? I I, I think that's uh we're, it's a critical situation now in that you've got a lot of people that worked within uh, mm. the industry that are ready for retirement, and I'm not surprised. You know, with the way things have been for anybody that works in healthcare. Uh, over the uh, pandemic, um, they're ready to retire, but it's all of that knowledge. Uh, and that, that goes away with them. Yeah. yeah so, um, and I know that you see uh, a lot around um, apprenticeships, modern apprenticeships, but mm. um, I think we, we might be leaving all of that a little bit too late because the other thing to bear in mind is um, when you're bringing in technicians from other industries, baked bean, tin, uh, factories, you know, all of those, and you bring them into healthcare, it's a different environment entirely. You know, and you can't have them standing on the bed to change a light bulb, which, you know, I'm not sure that they would do that, but uh, it is a different environment where patient care is paramount. And um, so uh, I, I think that there's uh, quite um, a transition for anybody that comes into healthcare to understand uh, that you've not there to just to maintain things, but um, mm. it, it's got to be maintained in such a way that you don't disrupt patients, nursing staff, all of those sorts of things. Where normally they would have been doing that in a in a in a, in a, in a totally different environment. Yeah. Mm. And do you do you think there's a role of technology to play there to bridge the gap? I mean, tools that can be provided better because there's tons of information. There've been some PFIs which have been in operation for ten years, twelve years. Uh, Daphne systems having tons of data but hardly accessible. Uh, do you see a, a a point of revolution happening there? Yes, I do. I, I I think that that's got to be 
when you get is, um, issues like this, I think you've got to use uh, more than one solution. Mm. So you've got to use technology, you've got to use um, uh, the resources, you've got to use um, uh, perhaps changes in design. There's all sorts of things that you've got to, to use now because it, I don't think that we'll ever return to um, a, a less um, frantic environment than we are now. I think it's mm. always going to be the same. So rather than deal with that day in, day out, and everybody gets burnt out, let's collectively look at ways that uh, we can find solutions. You Makes know, sense. trust everybody. Look, look at ways to find solutions for it, yeah. No, ultimately, the, it's the patients that suffer ultimately, yeah, otherwise. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So that kind of brings us to the close of the of the podcast. It was really interesting talking to you, listening to first principles, the fact that you mentioned first principle, elements of change management uh, uh, and all of that. But maybe as a summary, uh, what, what are your top one or two recommendations for uh, modern day FM companies to really get their act together? I actually, uh, I, I, your question five, I, I really found quite interesting, really, mm. because we all talk about net zero. Right. My, uh, my um, uh, experience of that is that uh, when I work with organisations, they talk about net zero, but um, fundamentally, they don't know what their carbon footprint is anyway. So. Mm. One of the things that I do with organizations is um, let's work out what your carbon footprint is as an organization. You know, what mm. do, what's your reliance on fossil fuels? Um, so that then they can start to put in some clear measures and then they've got something to measure themselves against. So I every time I ask this question, when I go into organizations and into um, uh, healthcare, um, I rarely get uh, that they understand that they really should have been working out their baseline first before they start to look at initiatives. Otherwise, you've got nothing to measure yourself against. And I think, and that's again, goes back to the fair first principles, right? Like, I mean, one of the things I've observed in healthcare facilities across where we are operating, uh, your FD has said something else and you assumed it's operating at that level. <laughs> it's never operating at that level anymore. Uh, Add 25, 10%, uh, 20% and your baseline's changed. So, but again, that's first principle. I think that's a that's a role which FM companies can clearly play um, and say that, hey, you know, PFI, if you want to go net zero, we are your best partners uh, because we know the baseline, we know the assets and and, and stuff like that. But again, I've, I've hardly seen any FM company put a foot right in this direction, by the way. They're still struggling. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, there's so much available, you know, you can go onto the Carbon Trust and you can get the models. Right. You know, I, I do that with companies and we come up with, a you know, a carbon footprint. But um, so everybody talks about carbon reduction and net zero, but then they've not really established what their carbon footprint is anyway to be able to set some realistic goals. So I don't quite know that they understand that that's what you've got to do to go back to that first principle. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much, Bob. I mean, as a, as a recap, I think if I could just sum up this in, in one line where, where Bob says that we're never going to go back to a previous times. Things are going to be stressed. I mean, as far as healthcare facilities are concerned, and which in turn means that the FM teams and the assets that they maintain are going to be in equal or more stress. And, and the only way forward is to be able to make the best use of technology, go yeah. back to the first principles, which are engineering, uh, and, yeah. and, and make the most of the resources that's available with a very special focus on how do you retain the knowledge uh, as an institutional knowledge and not just as an individual's knowledge. 
thank you so much, Bob. I really appreciate you taking time out. This was really Pleasure. interesting talking uh, to you. Thank you. And I'm hoping that that, that the listeners can pick up a, a insight or two to act on. I hope they feel the energy because I've got plenty of energy and plenty of understanding. So, um, yeah, Absolutely it's, certain. It's, it's been, I've really enjoyed it. And thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Thanks. Thank you.